Run if you must. Hide if you can. Scream if you are able. But above all, if you are alone, don't let them catch you. <laughs> the Slashers. Welcome to The Slashers, a podcast where three film critics with wildly different tastes delve into the golden age of the slasher genre year by year, present awards along the way. I'm Jason from Binge Movies. I'm Megan from Spoiler Piece Theater. And I'm Paul from The Countdown. On this episode, our blood pool consists of 1981's The Burning, 1981's Happy Birthday to Me, 1981's The Prowler, and 1981's Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. This is a part two of a two-part. 1981 was such a big year for slashers that we had to break it up in two. If you haven't listened to our first episode, it's the first episode where we got along, so it's pretty fun. <laughs> uh, here we are with our part two for 1981. Let's kick it off with you, Megan. What are your general impressions of the year 1981? How does it stack up against the first part of 1981 and uh, 1980? Yes. So as far as like themes or things that noticing trends, I said this in the last episode, but just in case you haven't heard that or if you need a refresher, talked about how a lot of the themes in these films have to do with class and the divide between rich people, college educated people and working class people. And I think that that's really interesting that we see that over and over again. Um, I think for me, the second half of 1981 is not as strong as the first half of 1981 film-wise. Yeah. That surprises me. Oh. In many ways. <laughs> Knew it. But but then um, I perhaps did not appreciate some of the first half of 1981 in the way that you did, Megan. So... Maybe that's maybe that's where we can find that discrepancy or, or determine the difference. Uh, I, th- I thought this this particular pool, blood pool, is uh, definitely bloodier than those that have come before, and for that reason, I found a lot to enjoy in this particular half of the year. Certainly, it feels like the slasher genre now is getting into its groove. It's getting rid of some of the pretend elements that we saw a lot of in 1980 and a little of in the first half of this year. These films, with one probable exception, are straightforward slasher films and there's no mixing in of other genres or diluting the blood, if I could put it that way. Ooh, it's just like straightforward, <laughs> gory goodness. Gory goodness. like that. Well, if you've never listened to us before, Paul is not only Australian, he is also our resident gore hound. That so- would be me. This tickles your fancy. Uh, Megan is our resident film scholar, an, uh, a, a term which she objects to, but I apply anyways. Uh, so she's coming out from that lens, and I'm the guy who likes <laughs> I'm the guy that likes trash movies. 100%. <laughs> I'm the cult movie fan. I'm the drive-in movie fan. I'm the midnight movie fan. Uh, so it's always interesting. We have three radically different perspectives on movies, which makes this show so interesting. I am in agreement with Paul again. All right. I thought, this, I thought the second half of 1981, I, okay, I think overall 1981 is the superior slasher year to 1980. 
Yeah, oh, I agree sure. with that too. Uh, I think these are much better movies. Yeah. Um, I think the second half is exceptionally strong. I like every movie on this list. This was so far, when we get to our award section, this was the hardest for me because I could give, there's great kills in a lot of these movies. There's, there's so much to talk about, so much text, subtext. Um, we've, we got the whole gamut here of movies that have grown in appreciation over time, movies that were instant hits. Movies that are completely and totally fucking obscure. (laughs) (laughs) We have it all. I think this is maybe the best representative sample of what the slashers were in the eighties so far. So uh, let's, let's get into it. Let's start with a film that came out May 8th, 1981. I'm talking about one of those movies that's grown in appreciation over time. The burning. What happened one summer, five years ago is about to happen again. And again, and again. The Burning. Man, this movie has a cast of a bunch of people you would see just a few short years later in McDonald's McDLT commercials. <laughs> Jason Alexander, Fisher Stevens. <laughs> Fisher Stevens is most famous for putting on brown face. In short circuit, but now succession, so we can forget about short yes. circuit. Now succession, he's in succession, so we can forget about forget about the circuit. racism. <laughs> Don't ever forget about hackers, though. Don't ever forget about <laughs> hackers. Um, we get another shower scene. Every movie's got to have a shower scene. Got it, especially one co-written by Harvey Weinstein. Oh, fuck. well, it's yes. Um, sex crazed 30 year old teenagers. There is not other than Fisher Stevens who does look 15. Everybody else, every other teenager in this movie is middle-aged. <laughs> <laughs> this, this gives us black gloves, mm-hmm. scissors, in this case, shears. She, yep. We, we get a traumatized killer who's seeking yep. revenge with Cropsey. We see the trauma that was bestowed upon him. Megan, to your point, it's definitely a class issue. Yep. He's a poor, non-conventionally attractive, you know, quote unquote weirdo. So the kids are going to pull a prank on him. The prank goes wrong. Sadistic, they call him. Yep. And the prank goes wrong. And, you know, he's horribly burned in a pretty good burn sequence. Oh, yeah. Uh, Stuntman is doing that. Yep. Um, there's great fire stunts Absolutely. in here. I we got famous people before they're famous. We've got it's actually shot in the woods, yes. <laughs> remote location, actual camp, yep. remote location. Like we're we POV mm-hmm. heavy breathing. <sighs> like like we I think we finally did it. We got all of the <laughs> the tropes, the tropes. Distilled into a movie that has some pretty good kills. Megan, what did you think? Had you ever seen The Burning before? What do you, what do you think? I hadn't movie? seen The Burning before. And actually, this is, I think The Burning is great. And I think because it utilizes the various tropes of the slasher genre so well, and the kills in particular are outstanding. They're extremely gory. They're memorable. Yes. They're interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Creative. creative yes surprising yep. even though you know like there's a there's the obvious yep. ominous sense of dread like especially when they're in 
the raft scene. The raft scene is incredible, and when they're they're rowing up to the green canoe, and incredible. you know, you know that the killer is there. You just know, but that sense of dread is just palpable. And then it just the killer just unleashes this bloody fury, and like fingers are chopped off, and people are stabbed and slashed, and it is just gruesome. But to but it's so much fun and it's done incredibly well and it's just really striking and so i think this is a great film as far as a slasher genre as far as a camp slasher you know kind of the subgenre within the subgenre yep i think this is really great had a lot of fun watching this when he comes up out of the canoe it doesn't make logical no. sense <laughs> but when he comes up out of the canoe and he's got the shears over his head and we're panned up we're looking up at him that is straight out of a Bava film. That's straight out of Italian horror. Absolutely. And it plays so well. And you, here's what you can tell. The people who made this movie, the director, the, the cinematographer, they actually were trying to make a movie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is a camp movie. It is a slasher movie. It is obviously coming in the wake of Friday the 13th and Halloween, all these other movies. But it is trying to do something different. It is. There's some psychology to it. There's some foreboding to it. It makes you wait for yes. the kills, which I could see being a detriment. Maybe Paul won't like that. It makes you wait, but yeah. it, in my opinion, it does. It earns the kills because when they come to your point, Megan, they're they're yes. different. They're so interesting and creative. There's good fakeouts in this yes. movie. There's good. Um, the characters, even though they're all 30 years old, kind of <laughs> seem like actual campers. Yes. Like it's like they, this is going to sound so stupid. I'm so used to camp movies and Friday the 13th movies where none of the kids like each other. And there's always the bitch and there's always the prude mm, and there's always yeah. the slut. This movie disavows all of that. And they're just kids of various ages having a good time at camp and they more or less get along mm -hmm. with each other. And that makes it scarier because they're all right. innocents. They're all just, they didn't do this to him. They're just at mm -hmm. camp. They're just like when they're on the way to the canoe trip, they're splashing each other. They're having a good time. Like there's, there's no, there's no bullies. There's no, 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 there, there is, is definitely a bully. a bully. That blonde guy. Well, Sally, Sally, yeah, he's boyfriend. a bully. The, yeah. Yeah, but he's he's also mocked That's by true. the other members of the group, including uh, yeah, that, uh, Jason yeah. Alexander. They they ride his ass for right. being a bully. That That's is refreshing, refreshing that they band yes, together with that kid. Yeah, no, totally, I agree. So that's, I was it's like, again, you put these movies in a certain context on their own. That's eh, okay. But you're like, after watching so much of the stuff <laughs> we've watched so far, it's like, my God, here we go. And again, this is a revisit for me. So, all right, Paul, is Negatron on board or what's going to happen here? No, Megatron on this page. Where are you at? <laughs> Negatron not, well, may well make an appearance for the end of this episode. Don't oh. get me wrong, but not for this film. I know I which the burning, one. The burning is a... Uh, <laughs> It's a classic for a reason. This is a cult classic. This is a film which failed. Yes. It just disappeared into into the ether of slasher films. And over time, because of that raft scene, and that was the only reason I watched this movie when I was 14 or 15 years old, somewhere around that time when I was really getting into horror. Because even then, even back in those days, pre-internet, I'd heard about the raft scene. And so I went and sorted it out and wasn't disappointed by the raft scene. I will agree 
as much as I know what it's doing, a little bit like Toby Hooper's The Fun House, see our episode, uh, last episode before a discussion about that film, it does build up and it takes a lot of time and it, it obviously the, the opening's great. The oh, see so what great. happens mm-hmm. to Cropsy, like you said, Jason, and the stunt's fantastic. And then the reaction of the staff to seeing how burnt he is, but we don't see him, that's very good mm-hmm. as well. I don't think we needed the next scene where he kills a, a, a prostitute. I'm not sure what that really achieved all that much, to be honest. We could have just gone straight into, you know, he's the making camp. his way up. Yeah. Yep. Um, but then we get to introduce the characters and they become discernible enough by the time they do start getting, well, they get half of them get killed en masse on that raft. And then we're left with a few of the other characters left. Surprisingly, the weirdly, I don't know if he's the annoying character, but he's certainly a bit out of place. Like you don't go crawling into a shower space and, and checking out, uh, woman no! and, and that'd be okay. Uh, but he, he's the closest we get to an annoying character in, in this film, and yet he gets all the way through to the end and actually lives. He's involved in the final battle along with the, the hero of, of the piece. If I have a complaint, it's that we have a lot of characters who don't die. That if we're going to set up 15 of them, how come seven of them sort of walk away? <laughs> which is surprising to me. <laughs> I want more death. It's almost like they ran out of budget for that because Tom Savini was responsible for the yes. prosthetic yes. effects, the practical effects of this film. and does a stellar job building on his repertoire. He's been through Dawn of the Dead and now um, 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 Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th, Friday the 13th. Of course. yes. And maybe he worked on another one of the films that we're going to talk Maniac. about Maniac. Yeah. Maniac. He worked on Maniac you. as well. So he's at the top of his game here. There's, there's a reason why he is revered as, as a god in this particular genre and you can see it here on screen, bright and gory and bloody with all the things that the two of you have said in terms of some very impressive kills. And yeah, I'm kind of surprised this didn't work other than it must have disappeared into the vortex created by Friday the 13th, which is really yep. a real shame because this has the potential to be as good and probably better than the series of films we got from uh, Friday the 13th. Agreed. Yeah, th- so are we discovering that uh, uh, that Savini, this is not a discovery, but is it, a, is it an organic rediscovery for us that Savini is the secret sauce to this genre? That, I think so. Because we've, we've picked movies that, that are representative, that meet a certain criteria that scholars have defined, and that we're trying to get a wide spectrum. So we wasn't like we're going to pick all the Savini movies, but every year mm-hmm. when we have one or two and we have a couple this, this round, Mm-hmm. A Savini movie pops up. We're like, that's the one that's the most creative. The kills are the best gags. Interesting. That look amazing. Completely different angle. Yeah. Yeah. Very. In- there's an intelligence. There's a, a stagecraft to how the kills are staged. Yes. Um, it's not just the makeup effects. It's the way the camera moves and ev- yep. just everything. That's when he's involved. It's at a different level. Absolutely. Megan, you're going to say something. I com- I'm so glad that you said that, Jason, because I completely agree. And I, th- I mean, Savini is a master for a reason. But yes, it is. It's it's the fusion of the creativity of the kills along with the special effects. But I think what's really interesting to hear in the burning is that I think it's interesting that the director is actually the one who's behind the shears because no, uh, for most of it, because no one else could hold supposedly hold the shears the exact way he wanted, where the light would glint off of them, which is very giallo. And also, we get some cuts to red, like we do in Night School too once, and that's very giallo. Like so, there's these, there are these touches which I think are great. Um, Paul, I also wanted to talk about what you mentioned about why does he kill the sex worker and like what's the point of that scene? And, you know, if I didn't know what I know about Harvey Weinstein, you know, knowing that I'm like, well, he's, he's a fucking Mm. creep and he's gross. And so it's about 
just randomly objectifying women <laughs> yeah. uh, because he's so disgusting. Yeah. I will say, though, if it was another filmmaker attached to this, you could make the argument that the killer is practicing his kills and starts off with someone that society deems as disposable, which is a sex worker. So I right. won't okay. miss. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's a great Thank point. You. I can buy yeah. that. Thank you. No, that's a great point, Megan, because Cropsey isn't a killer. Right. Right. Before he's disfigured. He, he may be a jerk that that may be their interpretation of him. Cause we don't really get, no, we hear stories right. about him, but we never see him be abusive to the kids or mean or whatever. So we don't know that we don't, we don't. And the, the, I don't feel like the movie was really like, yeah, he deserved to be burned. I don't think that's the take the movie no. has. I think it's sort of ambiguous and, and, and that whether he was a, a, a monster before he was a monster or not. So you're, you're a hundred percent right. I, cause to me that felt like, um, almost like a holdover to what we saw in 80 and to a lesser extent, like you said, Paul, in the first part of 81, where there was a lot of night stalking, yes, yes. sort of the slasher genre. It was like a lot of like David Ramirez, like, you know, mm. go out in the night and strangle women and slash them with knives. And that, that part of that, that random scene, cause it's mostly at camp felt like a holdover to that of like, but you're, I think you're right, Megan. I think it might be a both and situation. I think that that's supposed to be like, he's practicing. He's escaped the hospital, uh, in a urban setting. He hits the streets. He knows he wants to get revenge, but he's not a killer. He practices his first kill on a quote unquote disposable person. Won't be Mm -hmm. missed. And then, makes his way to camp. That's a, that's very insightful. I, cause I, I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> we don't need this, but you're right. Yeah. What's yeah, interesting. Was, like, go ahead, Paul. Sorry. Sorry, Jason. Uh, am I right in saying that this Cropsy legend is a real thing? Not in this exact way that this film is, but there's a legend of, a, of someone named Cropsy who ran around in New York. So I'm yes. sort of looking at this and that's where they got the idea from and then gave him a bit of a backstory. There's a debate of whether the urban legend was first or this movie was first. Okay. Interesting. And there's, there's, there's an online debate because the urban legend existed, but the name Cropsy was first used in this movie before it was applied to that urban legend. So Uh, there's a debate that some people say, Oh, the name was taken from this movie and applied to an upstate New York urban legend. So, Gotcha. Uh, but there's who knows because that's urban legends pre-internet so we don't know where stuff came from so so i, I del- went down that rabbit hole there was a a quasi pseudo documentary about cropsy that came out maybe like 15 20, 20 2000 years ago. yeah nine somewhere around there yep yeah yep so I, I saw that and i was like oh first time i saw the burning i was like what influence what and it's a tenuous connection um it's not quite as defined glazer who is the asshole the, the bully whatever yep. whatever the fact that he's this machismo bravado bully blah 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 and then he is totally sexually <laughs> inept and basically yep. it, Shocker. Like, not, not to not to poke fun <laughs> yeah not to poke fun at you know whatever people's sexual uh vitality <laughs> um but the idea, like that, was to me that is a great subversion of the horror genre. Of she, her response is, "That's it." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
after all that hype, after pressuring her and pressuring, she finally gives consent and is like, okay, I'll lose my virginity to you. And it's over in two mm-hmm. seconds. And, 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 and just when his character almost kind of starts to redeem himself a little bit, he flips back into an asshole and is murdered. So it was like, I, I, I like that aspect of it. I also like that this is the first, there is this sort of um, stereotype with these movies that is not exactly true. That like, oh, well, like the girls all have to either be slutty or prudish or whatever, because like in uh, Friday the 13th, she drinks, she smokes, she has sex, she smokes weed, uh, Alice. So she's not the the prude. Um, uh, also in Halloween, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, uh, Laurie, smokes weed, uh, is is bookish but she's not asexual right like she doesn't have sex so that's kind of though. a misnomer i think there's like a misinterpretation yes that's true <laughs> just saying what i did like about this movie is that there is the jason alexander sexual whatever i like that he gets booed down by the group a lot like ah boo <laughs> and when he's making his like innuendo comments and i also like that the women join in with the crude comments sometimes that they can be yeah. just as crude as the boys i'm like oh these are again Real fucking people, movie people, not real, real people, but there is an attempt to make these characters, regardless of gender, appear to be human beings, even though they're 50. (laughs) (laughs) Jason Alexander was only 22 when this movie was shot, would you believe? Jason Alexander is 55 years old. (laughs) He's always been 55 years old. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it, Paul, was there too much baseball, too much intergender baseball in this movie nope, for you to? Nope. I didn't mind that part. <laughs> we ha- we have to set up the characters a little bit. I mean, I think yeah. we had too many too many scenes of guy pressuring girls to do something. Thank you. Again, yes. we know we know who's behind this film. That's my biggest problem. Like we got that that storyline plays out like basically in two separate scenarios. We didn't need that. We could have yep. completely cut two of those characters, or at least made them be something different. If we had to have that scene. That was his name. Glazer was enough. We didn't need the other dude who dies on the on the raft, um, along with uh, Fisher Stevens yeah. and Co. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially because Glazer gets it. Like Glazer is punished for mm-hmm. pressuring this girl, and, and so is like, the other the, guy. But then both the girls yeah, right. die as well. Correct. Who are pressured Correct. into doing this, and so Correct. You, if you read that, um, Megan, perhaps you you would like to speak more to this, but. It almost feels like, well, they should never have consented. Otherwise, they'd yes. be alive. Well, they, fucking, they were bloody badgered to this. And then that girl is in, gets a skinny dipping in the in the watering hole. She actually goes, well, fuck this. Enough of you, you asshole. And he's like, I know, yes. I love that. <laughs> and she gets <laughs> yeah. it first. Yeah. So, yeah. which did, I, did yeah. Okay. Am I reading into it? Am I isogeting the text because of what we know about Weinstein? Or did yeah, this movie feel like the director and maybe some of the other people who actually did the core writing were almost <laughs> like writing against like it, the movie at times almost feels like it's at odds with each other because we have empowered female characters. who are like, mm-hmm. Oh, fuck you. Get out of here. You're an asshole. I'm done with you. And then the, the Weinstein mm-hmm. effect mm-hmm. hits. It almost felt like he, I mean, he's notorious for that. He added his, and again, this is this is apocryphal. P- potentially, did it? Did you guys get that sense of like it felt like maybe Weinstein like kind of forced some of his weirdo sexual politics into a movie that was actually maybe a little bit more clever than him? Yeah, I t- 
Or am I, I don't think you're reading into it too much at all. I, I mean, listen, it, I know we're retroactively looking at it. So, and we weren't there in the writer's room, you know, but I mean, he did write this story yeah. along with two other writers. And like I've said before, yeah. there, you can't, you can't escape your own biases. They're going to seep into your work and your art. And so I do agree with you. I do think that there's a lot of contradictions in this film, which makes for interesting characters as a result and an interesting storylines. But yet, so because there are empowered women, like we do see young women who are, who are, vocal about what they want and like you know they're the character who's like fuck this i you know you said you said you would respect my boundaries and you didn't i'm out and but paul you're also absolutely right these women along with the men are punished for having sex and you know that's the thing it's not just the women characters who are punished having sex sometimes on screen although sometimes it is but a lot of times it's the men too and so they're the teens are punished for having sex in general and a lot of times even if they're not punished Mm. for it we get POV shots of the killer watching them, being stalkery and and observing yeah. and and oh, seeing sure. the you know and a lot of times they're characters who are not sexually attractive conventionally or they're outsiders and so they're they're lusting after this kind of you know heteronormativity that they an attraction that they don't have. Um, so yeah, I think there's a youth and beauty. Yes, exactly. Traditional beauty. It's also the objectification of women and women's bodies. Like there's a lot happening, but there's also, but simultaneously you also have teen women who are exercising their own agency sexuality wise. Um, so there's just a lot of contradictions, which I think, again, I think makes for great conversations, but I think in this film in particular, it really works well. Because it makes for interesting characters who do feel very real. But yes, to answer your question, I do think they were potentially writing against some creepy shit. Yeah, it it just feels that way. And one of the complexities that I think is 100% intentional is our main male counselor, who is mostly a pretty good guy. When the kid's lurking in the shower... He reads that kid, the riot act. He's like, what the hell are you doing? You can't be a creep. Like you can't go in there. Like he hammers this kid. He makes good decision after good decision after good decision. And he's like the hero of the picture. And in the very end, it's revealed. He was, he was one of the main antagonists responsible for Cropsey's creation. What a brilliant. I thought that was incredible. Even the the reveal of him in the, we already saw the flashback. But the reveal of him in the flashback and the pan over and I think his name is Paul, maybe. Right. And they're like, like, what do you think, Paul? And he's like, yeah, let's get him. And it's like, oh, no, (laughs) our hero is the villain. Yeah. Yeah, arguably. Although, of course, it was played by a completely different actor. It was only five years of difference. So there was no way you could have picked that up in terms of watching. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) <laughs> so it's it's not really a mystery to be solved. They're, they're cheating on you, but you're right. It is a it is an interesting flex to the film where it's like eh, it's not as straightforward as you thought, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot big and like you said, there's a lot more going on in this movie than meets Definitely. the eye. I think that's why its estimation has grown over the years because it's fun, it's creative, it's got good kills, and on top of all of that. It is complex. There are themes and ideas and things at odds with each other, sometimes intentional, maybe sometimes <laughs> unintentional. So it's a much more 
this this is just a great watch and every time i revisit it i like it more and i like it so much i would commend to you i don't know if the transfer is good i think it's a, a semi-decent transfer uh but shout factory scream factory which is actually not like scream studios i think mm-hmm. they just changed their name uh actually just put out a 4k this year of the burning right so okay. check that out very nice yeah there's a lot of good transfers of this one out there, though. This is one that have, that when they whenever it got rediscovered, somebody had preserved the actual or the original negatives and inner positives because there's a there's pretty decent transfers out there even at you know two K. So I'm interested to see if the four K is good. All right, anything else about the burning, or should we move it along? Move it along. All right, if the burning was inspired by Jalo. Here comes one that was inspired by Argento, <laughs> in my opinion. It is Happy Birthday to Me, which came out May 15th, 1981. Someone's having a party for the top 10, the senior class snobs. Before they get to celebrate, six of them will die in the most bizarre ways you'll ever see. Virginia, don't go away. Come over here, Virginia. It is up to you to determine whether you wish to subject yourself to fear, terror, and shock. Because of the bizarre nature of this birthday party, pray you are not invited. This is, uh, again, one of the majors is entering the fray with the slashers, Megan. We've had Paramount already dip their toe in the water. Now we have Columbia Pictures, you know, uh, mm, yep. who was partly responsible with My Bloody Valentine because it was the same um, producing uh, partners. I think Valentine was distributed under like a lesser label or whatever. This is Columbia Pictures on the box. This is the one they, they this was finished first. They put my bloody Valentine in theaters first to hit Valentine's Day, obviously. Um, right. This was often seen as one of, uh, a Friday the 13th ripoff. The script for this was actually written before yes, Friday the 13th. Was. And they were actually starting pre, they started production around the same time. Is that right? Huh. Yep. Um, the opening six minutes of this are the most Jalo Jalo of anything that we've seen thus far. The, like this movie is definitely all the Bavas, all the Argentos, all of the, 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 all of the top tier Italian horror and crime directors. They're all here in this movie. Um, to the point that we get straight razors, which is the, I think the first time a true blue straight razor has appeared. Um, we get so much repressed trauma, which is a (laughs) staple of Italian horror brain stuff, ghosts in the machine, all this sort of stuff. This movie is, this is my last bit of history, and then Paul, I'll kick it over to you. This, mystery, this movie is famous to some extent because it was originally a ghost story. Originally, the premise of the movie was that it was the, the spirit of the mother had inhabited the daughter. So every time the daughter blacked out, she was possessed. 
and that this experimental brain surgery had allowed her to be possessed by the spirit of her dead mother. Okay. Some of it was shot. Not all of it was shot. And Columbia cut all of it out of the movie because they were trying to conform this into a more standard slasher film. Right. The result is the ending makes no goddamn sense. Oh, God. I think it's a great ending. <laughs> Thank God you said that. I'm so pleased. But it makes no sense. No, because at, it, not at all. Because it's not the direction the rest of the movie was going. The rest of the movie is a psychological. Makes, is she split yeah. personality? Yes. Is she? And then the reveal was going to be she's fucking possessed. It's been supernatural the whole time, which makes all the sense. The movie would make so much more sense. So Paul, as opposed to a scene it. where where because did you know? <laughs> Megan and Jason, that if you are chloroformed, you forget and have no memory at all of being chloroformed <laughs> in the minutes leading up to said chloroforming. This is a known side effect of being chloroformed. So no one alive has ever known whether they've been chloroformed or not. You may have been. <laughs> I may have been. But we just don't remember it. You may that's be chloroformed what this film right posits. now. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what this film posits. And the only way this film works is if you believe someone will not remember having been chloroformed at any point the six times that they are chloroformed in this particular film. Uh, anyway, look, there are some really good moments in this film and I think it's well shot. It looks yeah. like a good, it's a good looking film. There's some Dutch angles in there. We got, there's a lot more going on and the budget's relatively high compared to most of the films that we have watched this yep. point in time. It's sort of three and a half million around $1980. That's a fair whack for a, for a horror film. Uh, does it work overall? Look, you know what I really hate? Don't tell me six people die. Don't tell me on the box <laughs> that six of these characters are going to die and then proceed to conform to that. That is so stupid. Like, so the, the entire market, yeah, the, the entire market of the movie, they built it around the kebab kill. They're, and in fact, the, one of the taglines was, "You'll never eat shish kebab again." Yeah. And the, but the way the movie operates is, it's a total fucking surprise. Now, does it make sense that they're having fireside kebabs after the prom? <laughs> Not really. Uh, but but yeah, the well, skewer bit, the skewer portion comes out of fucking nowhere, and it would have been so much better if they didn't put that on the box. Yes, and also just yeah. just let it be a slasher film. Don't market it around six of these people are going to die. Come for six of the strangest deaths you'll ever see. That's just <laughs> daft. Almost as daft as the fact that ten characters come together because they're the top ten students at a school, and all even though they have nothing in common except one. Very important defining characteristic, not their intelligence, not that they're super smarter than everyone else at this college, university, whatever it is. That's no, high school. They're def they're def oh, as a high school, is it? Even yes. How are they going drinking in a bar and everyone's just turning a blind eye then? Because they're rich. It definitely feels like it should be set at college, but- Because you're yeah, right, because she's turning 18. Yeah. They make the point of saying that she's 18. It's because they're also, rich. That's I why don't they know look when away. The, when did the drinking- yeah, but also, when, when did the drinking age change in the 70s, Ooh, Megan? In the States? Yeah, it, used to be it did 18. used to be 18 for a bit. It's 18 here, so we, yeah. we never changed it. We never got that memo. So, it's still on its way by a, you know, <laughs> hand yeah. delivery. So, in but, fairness, I don't, I don't know the exact date. This may have been conceived before okay. or shot even before the cha date change. I just don't know. But, but you were complaining about how they how old they were in the burning. Tell you what, Matt Frew was in this movie, and he looks like he's about forty seven <laughs> at the time. Of he does. Here, let alone some of the other characters. Anyway, the defining thing that brings them all together is their one common personality trait. They're all horny. <laughs> Tell me who is with who in this movie. They are handing each other around left, right, and center like no one's business, and no one seems to mind. And this one's having a lover's spat with this one, and that guy over there now he stands in the middle, and later on he's gone home having shish kebabs. Oh, I couldn't keep a track of who was. <laughs> Fucking whom? But I'm, see, okay. I, I, I I think that's by intent because I think to Megan's point, I think this this movie hates wealthy oh, yeah. people. Oh yeah, 
And the right. perspective of this, the perspective of this movie is look at these rich fucking pricks. Look yeah. at these rich fucking high school kids with their rich fucking parents. They're all entitled. They're all assholes. And you're going to watch every one of these six fucking entitled pricks die and suffer. And ultimately the three that just disappear from the narrative because that because <laughs> why is there top 10? One girl They're, standing in, standing in horror, holding a, a card or something in the rain. You never see her again. Well, that was really scary. And then the asshole guy who takes her up into the bell tower, he just literally disappears from the narrative because <laughs> he wasn't invited to her birthday in the first place, according to the film. So stupid. This film is and the dumb. guy and he, then he goes missing, and then they find him, and then he really wasn't missing. Then yeah, oh, and he, he buried the killed. scarf. Why did he bury the scarf? No one knows. I. <laughs> But here's the thing: I don't. How much Italian horror have you watched, Paul? I don't think you've watched as much of it as I have. I haven't watched as much as you, as probably the two of you. I've seen enough this, to know that it often doesn't make oh. much sense either. <laughs> yeah. So that's every Italian horror movie, even the great ones. What the fuck did that happen? Who knows? It's Dario Argento. There's not one of these films that makes logical sense. Not yeah. one. Things happen because they happen, and they're sometimes and they're visually interesting, and they're provocative. Yeah, and that, it's a it's about creating emotion. It from scene to scene it's not about cohesion and this movie is desperately logical analytical no no this movie is desperately trying to be an italian horror film it's also about 15 minutes too long oh my god some of these scenes drag for an eternity i will agree with that we have to watch her wake up groggily 75 times (laughs) that's like after the first often yeah, after after, after the, but it's like we have to watch it in real time. And she yep. opens her eyes, and then she, oh, uh, it's like okay. After the first time, we get what's happening. Um, I think this is a, this is a somebody wanted to make an Italian horror movie on a studio budget. The studio gave a bunch of money, then hedged their bets and went. Um, the slasher thing's a craze. We want this to be more in line with a slasher movie, so we're gonna market it around the kills. We're gonna edit this thing to shit and we're going to tack on this bizarre ending that I love, by the way, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It Where possible seem sensible, <laughs> but it's it really set does. up because they have a high school kid oh, who can make mission impossible style masks. <laughs> he can make mission. It's set up in the it logic of the movie. <laughs> the yeah. movie has its own internal logic, Paul. Is it, there's no, it, I would be with you if it wasn't set up. And it's just like, well, where the fuck did this high school girl get a Mission Impossible level <laughs> I, mask? I know where she got the mask. I'm still wondering how it maps onto her face so perfectly that she emulates the other girl so wonderfully but well. But also- like a computer doing it. Okay, now hang on now. Also, the movie is kind of clever. And this is an Italian horror thing. They do, when they're in shots next to each other, they do not, they don't look dissimilar. There is a similarity in the way that they look. And I think the movie plays around with that. That's like a duality. Like, mm. like, like at certain times you're just sort of like, wait a minute, which one's which? <laughs> and I think it's doing that on purpose, not to the level that it needs to. There's definitely like a little persona going on here a little bit. Megan, you've, you've yet to fully chime in. Yes. <laughs> you agree with me? You agree with Paul? Well, I mean, or no, I agree with both of you. I mean, this film is completely <laughs> illogical. And if you try to, pick it apart that way it just falls apart and reads as stupid but there is something to be said for the themes that it's dealing with of trauma and memory and memory loss and duality all of that um 
that I think is potentially interesting. And I really like the Giallo touches. And you're 100% right, Jason. (laughs) Things just happen. And who cares? And who cares about character motivation? And who cares about continuity and and cohesion? You know, it's just this shot is striking and this kill is happening. And that's just that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But the problem is, is that it's an, it feels very much like an imitation of Giallo. It doesn't feel striking enough or innovative enough or unique enough to stand on its own. Um, And I, I agree with you, Paul, about the marketing. Like why have the six people that's, that's absurd, you know, like there's not enough suspense. (sighs) There's not enough mystery here. I will say though, I really wish they had gone with the original ending of Ginny being the killer. I think that would have been fantastic. Um, I also, when I first, when you first see, um, Bernadette wearing the <laughs> Mission Impossible mask of Ginny's face. What I thought initially was like, mm-hmm. oh, she had a twin sister. And I think that would have been, That's I think I that would have been more interesting yeah. than what we get. And instead it's like, oh no, instead Bernadette is slut shaming Ginny for her mother. And I'm like, this is just absurd. Um, so yeah, I think there's some mm-hmm. interesting things happening. This Jason, you're 100% right. This movie hates rich people. Like it spelled out explicitly about how oh, rich people it. are terrible yes. and awful. Um, I think this film has some interesting things going on, like the shish kebab through the throat. But again, you know it's coming. And yeah, it's a good kill. But I, again, I wish I had been more surprised by it rather than knowing it was coming. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, I do like... I do like the exploration of trauma and memory and how that impacts. And I also really love seeing Glenn Ford here. Glenn Ford is such a stellar actor. It's really nice to see him in a horror film. So, yeah. So I really liked that as well. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Can I leap off the Glenn Ford character? I'm not saying he's a bad bad performance. He's, He's fine in the role. But I tell you what, psychiatrists in your country... Must have gotten away with murder in the 80s. <laughs> How this guy is operating yeah. the way that he is with a 17-year-old girl is beyond yes. disturbing. How yes. he was not banned from the APA immediately upon, you know, obviously he meets his fate in this film and, and sure so he bloody well should. Who rocks around to a 17-year-old girl's house and changes her and does all this shit? Who hugs their patients and accepts right? the invite to her birthday? What the fuck are you doing? Obviously, Hollywood had and often has, let's be honest, no idea how to write mental health professionals because they just do the wildest fucking things. Very true. Very true. There is a big problem with how to depict people. I'm here for it. There's a big problem with depicting people with mental illness and often it comes off as ableist. And on the flip side, I think you're so right, Paul, that Hollywood, especially at that time, but even still today, a lot of times doesn't get therapy correct and doesn't get um, mental health care workers correct. So any right. concept at all. Yeah. I hate to disagree guys, but if Hollywood has taught me anything is that <laughs> mentally ill people are physically deformed. Most of them carry hatchets and wear burlap sacks over their head or motorcycle yep. helmets. And are going to murder you. Indigenous culture. <laughs> yes. Because they're crazy. Yeah. And they're yep. going to leer at you. And they're going to put a pickaxe in your brain. Stay yep. away from the mentally ill. They're dangerous. Um, <laughs> and psychologists Use. and psychiatrists are equally as dangerous. In fairness, yeah. of Jason from Binge Movies does not represent the rest of the Slashes podcast. Psychiatry is dangerous. They're going to put experimental oh shark brain God. cells in your head and your mom's going to possess you. Um, 
<laughs> the movie is a ghost story that got revised into a slasher. Right. And I think that's its biggest failing. However, the estranged, uh, um, guilty father. This is this is where you get an Italian ending. Uh, coming home to the cottage and all the rich assholes who refused to come to her birthday because her mom was seen as underclass and poor and married for wealth and wasn't bo- nouveau rich yes. was not born rich. And so they would, they excluded her from the group and they're all dead and rotting around that fucking table is so disturbing and the idea that the entire thing is either i kill you or i let you go down for the murders if you if you manage to kill me everybody's gonna blame you and the cop comes in and her dad's dead what and have you the done? villain's dead what have you done happy birthday to me that is a it doesn't make sense to get there but the re- final reveal is a great ending mm-hmm. it is a it's they're all their mutilated bodies around the table it is really dark and stormy night flashes of lightning painting around the table. It's creepy. I loved it. It is a really good ending in right up until the mission. Impossible. <laughs> yeah, it is a really good ending in that way. <laughs> and I also love that we see that type of ending again in, um, Karen Kusama's, uh, Jennifer's body. Like you get the same, the same thing with, oh. yeah, with needy. Um, and she's arrested anyway. I love Jennifer's body. Great. But similar ending. (laughs) Okay. So we're sort of Megan's in the middle. I'm in favor of (laughs) happy birthday to me, Paul. Not so much. In fairness, though, Fred the 13th also told you how many people were going to die in there. It's marketing. I missed that. Didn't say it. And I did tell you who who was going to die or how many. It told you how they're going to die. One is going to get a hatch. Oh, that's right. Three is going to get a a, a, four is going to get a yeah, they spoiled all of it. Very true. So Very okay. true. That. <laughs> let's move on to one of the most, in my opinion, underrated slashers of all time. The Prowler. It was 1945, the night of the graduation dance. The war overseas had just ended. The terror at home Boy. was about to begin. Roy? Come on. Come on, kid. Don't play hard to get. What about New Year's Eve? Well, that was different. I couldn't help myself. The Prowler. If he wants you, he'll get you. Which was released November 6th, 1981. We get more war trauma here. Megan, had you seen The Prowler? What do you think of this movie? I had not seen The Prowler. And I, I, this should not come as a shock to anyone. I love when horror films are digging into these kinds of issues. I love that we're getting to see PTSD and trauma. Love that. Um, this was okay. Um, I'm kind of lukewarm on it. Like, I don't, I didn't dislike this. I didn't think it was amazing. I enjoyed it. I thought it was fine. I kind of, I'm very intrigued what Paul thinks and I'm very intrigued as to why you, you love it so much, Jason. Cause I know it is very much like I've heard other people talk about how it's a very underrated slasher. Um, but yeah, I liked it. it. There's a lot of creepiness happening, a lot of stalkeriness and unnerving atmosphere, but yeah, it was okay. 
This is my bloody Valentine revisited. Will Paul complete the loop <laughs> or will he disagree with me? What? When I had the privilege, by the time this comes out a few months ago, of guesting on Screen Run with the Lady One and Chris Galzo, Chris was saying this was one of his favorite slasher films as well, Jason. Ooh. Very underseen, very underrated. So I'd mm-hmm. never seen it before. And I put it on, not expecting much. I'd seen that cover at the video store. This mm-hmm. is one of those, I remember this to this to this day, one of these videos yep. that was there that was R-rated and I couldn't watch it. And by the time I was old enough to watch it, I was probably not going to that part, you know, those video stores sort of anymore. And so I just missed me. I don't know why I missed it. And because I put this one on, not expecting much apart from Chris's recommendation. And I was very pleasantly surprised. I think Yes! Like you said, Jason, it's probably very much my bloody Valentine again. I think a lot of times it gets from the reviews I've read now since having seen The Prowler. It seems like these two are often sort of lumped together because there is a very similar vibe to them. Different reasons, uh, but still the trauma, as you said, Megan, the PTSD element that's driving the killer here. But yeah, I think the set pieces, the set kills in this film are sensational because who's doing them again i have to assume it's tom it savini, is tom savini a hundred percent tom savini there are i'm spoiling a little bit for the blood pool but my favorite kill of the week comes from this film and there are some astounding sequences in this movie in terms of the gore effects the mystery the the, the final girl in the film is yes. entertaining i think she's a great yeah very again, much so I'm spoiling my list here so she's pam is it pam Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, I think yep, so. Pam, Pam, excellent. Vicky Dawson as Pam is very good in this one. I don't know how Laurie gets a gets a, a credit in this film because he's in it for like two scenes barely. He doesn't don't even know if he says a, a word in the entire film. But um, yeah, I like I like the way this is all put together. I like the reveal at the end because it's not quite. It could be anyone, but it, it is there. You can you, the characters introduced, the character yep. disappears, the character comes back 100%. again. And, Oh, bam. Okay, here we are. And that explains why he didn't kill the, the deputy when he had the chance mm-hmm. to do so. He's he's offing the, the kids. He's not aiming it after his deputy, which is which is good. Yep. Yeah, I think this film's really good and bizarrely underseen given the quality of it. Directed by the guy who directed, I believe, Friday the 13th Part 4, which was uh, Joseph Zito. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah, well, that's the craziest thing because most people, or I should say most, a lot of people would say either 4 or 6 are the best yep. Friday films. Um, four is obviously the one where we are introduced to Tommy Jarvis for the first time when it's Corey Feldman yep. and the great, you know, the, a lot of people really like that movie. I'm a six fan. I prefer zombie Jason, by the way, re let me go back a little bit. Cropsy is better than non-zombie Jason. That's my controversial take. I would take Cropsy over non-zombie Jason Voorhees any day. Ooh, um, wow. I think he's, I think he's scarier. Uh, the, the prowler here, um, where's it going? What was they saying? Oh, what were you saying? Oh no. Yeah. I think it's weird that Joseph Zito, who directed one of the most popular slashers of all time, also directed another slasher before he did that one and no, with Savini well, yeah. and it's, it barely it's, gets it's, talked about. It barely gets talked about. The only time it gets talked about is, hey, this is a pretty good movie. Nobody ever talks about it. It just, it hasn't completely caught on. And that's obviously not true within the deep trenches of the horror fandom, but I'm just saying more casual horror watchers and film critics and film reviewers and podcasters, it, it, it it hasn't got its due. It still hasn't got its due. Um, I 
love that this movie's like, hey, you've seen slasher movies do the thing from Psycho 50 million times. So we're going to do it, and you're going to think it's going to be like Psycho, and instead it's going to be a pitchfork through the yes. glass. In like everything Hitchcock didn't do, he didn't show Showing you nipples, you. he didn't show you blood, he didn't show you penetration. We're going to do it all because we're not just going to mimic fucking Alfred Hitchcock. We're going to do it. And there's not going to be no subversion. Is it going to be kid brother? It's this guy's going to kill this woman brutally. And I, I think that's a great, the, the camera in the shower as the glass shatters towards it and the pitchfork comes towards the camera in with a perfect match cut to her getting pinned against the wall. The kills are scary. The people suffer. They're creative. Um, The motivation makes sense. Um, The opening, the Dear John letter, the derangement, the um, the eye roll, the knife in the head with the eye roll is disturbing. disturbing. Blood gushing down over the gloved hands. The camera pans around. It doesn't. You're not just. You see it from the angle, and it Mm -hmm. pans around. It's like we're not looking away from this. And and he's squirming and it's like it's oh I ooh I got <laughs> goosebumps like it's such a good kill. Um, we get a completely ludicrous, deeply offensive, but I think sincerely trying to be nice, like uh, uh, inclusive. Otto the Hodor <laughs> of this community. Hodor. <laughs> Yeah, who is like the literally is like the slow witted hillbilly guy who isn't a creep, isn't a weirdo. He's the no, he's, he's a fucking a, he's hero. He's almost the hero. He's for a minute, yeah, a hot minute. <laughs> and then there's an unintentionally comedic moment because then like he comes in as the hero, and then there's this extended scene and the, the love theme for the Prowler kicks up, and they're looking back and forth at each other really in a protracted way with goo goo eyes. And I thought that was so funny. And then bam, he springs up and boom, blows it. Oh, it's crazy. And I don't want to spoil my, uh, the awards at the end of this either, but there's an incredible moment at the end of this movie. I have to shout out Jao Fernandez, who was the Brazilian, a Brazilian cinematographer who shot this movie. This movie is in the cinematography is so energetic. Mm -hmm. The, the bullshit term is athletic, but it is, this movie has life to it. Um, I love that it kind of has European Gothic horror vibes, especially before we get into the lot of, you know, just creeping, foggy, Mm -hmm. eerie, old town, you know, uh, the sensibilities just really come together here. So I have nothing but high praise for the Prowler. The kills are spot on. They're creative. They're gory. Cinematography is incredible. Megan, to me, this is what you and Paul were we're trying to beat it in my head last episode, which is like, I want good cinematography. Yes. I want yes. good acting. I want, I think we, I think we get it all with mm-hmm. the Prowler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, the set location yeah. so alone is incredible along with the cinematography. Yeah. No, I don't disagree yep. either. I think I need to watch this again though. Like it. <laughs> but I did like it. It's not like I did it. Adding to the short list of films. I know. To keep watching. I just think I need to watch it again. <laughs> Do you know, one of the things I appreciated is, the there's there's so much creativity but when it gets to the kills once we're actually into the 
penetration, the slashing, it's so blunt. Like the filmmaking just goes blunt. And then normally that would be a bad thing, but I don't think it is here because I think that's the point is this isn't a movie that is necessarily trying to thrill you. Cause sometimes with Savini, especially in the Friday series, it's like, you're going to be, it's you're watching gags. You're, it's like, you're watching magic. Yes. Like how creative, like we're going to solve the person in half. Like how creative can you make the gag? And that's what you were really going to watch those movies for is like, what, you know, what's Jason. And it eventually got to the point of being humorous where you're laughing at him, you know, bashing somebody's head into the wall of an RV and you see the face printed. It, all, it almost becomes comedy at that point. There's nothing funny about the kills in this movie. Mm-mm. No, great. This is a Fun fucked thing. up person doing fucked up things to innocent people who have nothing to do with his, really, with his mm-hmm. trauma. He's just taking out unresolved issues on innocence and using, misusing his authority and all this other sort of stuff. He's just a deranged person. And so when we watch them die, it's not thrilling. It's horrifying, Mm -hmm. not scary, but horrifying because you're watching them again in the shower. We're holding on her fighting for her life with a pitchfork in the gut with a knife in the head. We're watching him spasm for a long time. And the Mm. brutality of it is just, yeah, I, I, this is, I would say this is an actual, like, this is good filmmaking, mm-hmm. even though it's a lower budgeted, less seen genre picture. So I found it initially very off putting the pitchfork in the stomach and the woman's naked. And I'm like, oh, here we go. Very objectifying. And the kills are really brutal and you really are forced to sit with them. But I think what's really fascinating is that the killer is a veteran. And what that kind of statement says about the dehumanization of war and how trauma yep. can dehumanize yep. you and, and feel you know, desensitized to violence and to brutality. And I think that the, there's some really fascinating things that are happening here. I agree. And I think the movie is leaning into those mm-hmm. things. I don't think it's just using him being a veteran as a smokescreen for brutality right right. Uh, i think the that's the reason why i like it why it feels like filmmaking where it's like it's thematic it's not just like look at these teenagers die it's like these people are dying horrible deaths for things they didn't commit and this guy's trained to murder in this way by being a soldier Mm -hmm. and it has it has changed this man in such a way that even decades later he is a faceless murderous killing Mm -hmm. machine yes and Oh, and really, I mean, like, there's no good explanation for what he's doing. There's logic to it, but there's no. He's he's been waiting. Was it 30 years in the film to 35 years, something along those lines to to continue once they reopen and have this party thing? He's like, all right, that's it. I'll pick up where I left off. I got my revenge, but he's been apparently living a relatively normal, we assume, living a normal life in the 35 years intervening in between, which is. Very disturbing. He can just turn it on and turn it off. Like That's what's creepy. Yes. Uh, and then the film runs with that theme of trauma as well because it does give you that final, you could say it's just a final jump scare, but it's showing that Pam, yes. you know, she's now traumatized. Yes. And not yes. to say she's going to become a, a murderer herself or anything like that, but it, it pauses to say, yeah, she lived and so did her boyfriend, the, the deputy. But it's not like everything's hunky-dory here, ladies and gentlemen. Yep. This, is, this is the kind of shit that's meant to fuck you up or will fuck you up for life. And, and poor Pam is 
probably going to be the recipient of that. Which Zito revisits with Tommy Jarvis. He <laughs> yes. uses the same ending. Yeah, I'm true. so glad you mentioned that, Paul, because in current cinema, there's such a resurgence or infusion of trauma and PTSD in films and in TV series. And a lot of times mm-hmm. it doesn't feel that a lot of filmmakers get it right because it's almost like they're like, oh, people are talking about trauma, so we should have trauma or it's a good backstory for a character, but they don't actually yeah. understand it. And I feel like this is very much saying like, no, once something's done, it doesn't just mean it's done. It haunts you. It stays with you. It changes Bingo. you. Yep. Yep. Yeah. This guy, this guy was traumatized by war and in the midst of being traumatized or before uh, whatever the timeline is, had his heart broken, was made psychologically vulnerable through heartbreak, went into a horrific situation and came home and went berserk. And then, yeah, was able to seemingly maintain until he was triggered again. And it's like he, yeah, he's through it, but it's not, he's not done right, with it. Right. It's, it's, it's not like, okay, well now that I killed all those people 50 years ago, I'm fine <laughs> like, or whatever. And then the same thing with the next generation, it gets passed down. He's now traumatized. He's now become the, the, the you know, he, be, he was made into a monster. And now he has potentially made monsters or a monster. So, yeah, very interesting. It's uh, some of these movies have a lot more on their mind than their reputation would make you exactly. Believe. Yeah, just as a simple yeah. slasher film. Now there's another movie, Paul. As a clinician, I can't wait to hear what you have to say. It has a lot on its mind, and most of it is thanks to Oedipus Rex, <laughs> Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker, aka Night Warning. Neither one of those names make any sense. No, a very <laughs> very barely seen film even in 1981 it came out november 20th 1981 a chilling tale of a young boy and girl innocent victims now targets of a frenzied obsession with murder see the award-winning night warning i would like to start this off (laughs) because <laughs> I know this is where shit is going to go sideways. <laughs> I think Susan Ty- Tyrell gives one of the most insane performances in film history. And I am here for it. I am living <laughs> for it. Her performance is in the realm of David Lynch, twin peaks or otherwise. It is disturbing. It is creepy. It is hilarious at times. It is funny the way she can flip on a dime. The the shit talk she gives to Margie, the the neighbor lady. Um, there is actual as bizarre as this movie is. There is some humor to it. There's the dialogue, the back and forth where the bigoted cop is like, uh, "Are you talking to me, lady?" And Margie goes, "Yes," because she's giving him shit. And he goes, "Don't." And I uh. laughed. Um, <laughs> the movie. <laughs> The movie is gained a reputation, uh, a positive reputation, because this is one of the first films in the 80s that had any positive depiction of a homosexual character. Yeah. Coach Tom Landers, uh, who was just presented as a good person whose sexuality yep. was incidental. And there's a really good review on Letterboxd by a user by, na- by the name of Sally Jane Black. Oh, I love Sally Jane Black. Sally Jane Black is great. Tell us who she is. No, I was just going to say, Sally Jane Black is a great film critic um, and is a trans film critic. And so it's no surprise that she has a great um, 
analysis or discussion about uh, the gay character here. So yeah, no, Sally Jean Black is great. Nice. Let me read a couple of paragraphs, and then we'll I'll kick it over to you guys. Uh, and if you want to find her, find her on Letterbox. But I thought this was this was this really crystallized to me my interpretation of the film as well. Uh, match my notes. That's why I'm quoting it. There, <laughs> there are queer films that reify queer identity, films that celebrate it, films that honor it, films that depict it, and films that examine it. There are films that denigrate it, exploit it, deride it, misrepresent it, or use it simply as a superficial sheen over straight stories. And then there are films that don't so much depict queerness as they depict homophobia. I don't mean they are homophobic films. I mean, they focus more on the homophobia than the identity, humanity, or reality of queer people. And usually these films end up being coarse, gay misery films or tired cliches. But then there is Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker. You could easily argue that this is a film that exploits homophobia. It is a film that, but it is a film that denigrates it. It derides it. It uses it as a superficial sheen over straight stories, not queer identity, not queerness, not homosexuality, but homophobia. It takes an ostensibly straight protagonist and his violent spoilers, incestuous mother, and pits them against a homophobic detective. His homophobia is vocal, forthright, vicious, full of every stereotype, malicious, misunderstanding, and outright lie told about queer people and is directed at a straight kid. This is also directed at an adult queer couple, one of whom is dead and the other of whom is forced to resign over it. Of course, important as both parts of the story and as part of the themes presented are, the majority of the focus is on how the situation influences our homophobic pig to harass, target, and sometimes even legitimately investigate our foolish protagonist. And it goes on from there. And she does an excellent job reviewing this film. I think, and this is my final thought. I'll kick it over to you, Megan. Uh, I have more. Thoughts. <laughs> this is my final thought. The second, <laughs> the movie does not end with the death of the killer. The movie ends with the death of the real monster, which is Carlson. The last, she gets the last fright. And then the movie continues yep. on. And the one who gets the absolute horrific death is the protagonist in this case, final girl who is a male uh, kills the real monster, which is the homophobic cop mm -hmm. Carlson played by Bo Svensson. So yep. um, that is my take on the movie is I think the first read of it is this is a homophobic film. I don't think so. I think this is a anti-homophobic film. Actually, the monster is the homophobe. Now what it says about moms, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we can unpack. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, what it has to say about psychology, moms. Yeah, that's that's debatable. But yes, no, I yeah. I actually yeah. I love that you read uh, Sally Jane Black's review because I've been following her for a really long time and she's great. Um, and I completely agree. Um, you know, it, horror has such a long queer history. There have been so many horror writers um, in the 1800s and the 1900s who were queer. There have been so many queer filmmakers. There have been so many writers who have put queer themes and coded queer characters throughout. Um, the Shutter series, Queer for Fear, is a really fantastic docu-series that explores that. Uh, but yeah, but queer people, ha we have as a collective and as horror fans been identifying with horror films for such a long time. 
because the monster in horror films is often the outsider, the misunderstood person who's ostracized by society. And to see a film that has a gay character just living his life, being just a regular person is groundbreaking and revolutionary, even though it arguably shouldn't be. And then the fact that you are so yeah. right, Jason, that the the real monster, the real culprit is homophobia um, is really refreshing and really great to see. Uh, I mean, it is very strange that it's coexisting simultaneously with the incestuous mm. mother, which I think is <laughs> could be a problem, you know, yeah. thematically. But as far as what it has to say about homophobia and how dangerous it is and how damaging and how destructive and just gross it is, I really applaud this film for what it's doing in that regard. And it was really refreshing to see, to see it so explicit. Megan, yes. what, somebody made the point, and I, I don't know if it was further in her review or another commentary that I saw, but someone made the point that Susan Terrell, as she's playing Aunt Cheryl before it's revealed that she's the mm -hmm. mom, is playing the role of the stereotypical, quote unquote, sissifying mother. And so it's playing against the fear of, well, obviously this kid must be gay, mm -hmm. which is what the bigot right. thinks, because he's being infantilized and quote unquote sissified by this woman. And so that's why he, and so it's like, it's using that old trope mm -hmm. of like, well, if your mother dotes on you too much, you'll end up being gay, yeah. uh, which clearly is not the case with this kid. He's clearly a heterosexual kid who just, you know, it's just. Like it's, it's all this paranoia around his sexuality, right, right. not anything he's even displaying or even talking about. Mm -hmm. It's not really an issue for him. It's issue for everybody else. And I think what tips the movie's hand and in a good way is when his, again, I love Susan Terrell in this movie, <laughs> her insane deliverance or delivery of homosexuals are very sick, sick people. And as she is drugging her nephew slash son's right, milk, right. mother's milk, <laughs> uh, that's the poison. Yeah, Drug, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chloroforming his fucking milk to keep him infantilized <laughs> so she yep. can either fuck him or murder him. And she's talking about how sick Coach Probably Tom is, <laughs> who is the most upstanding character in this movie. He's just a gentle, loving coach. Who's taking a shine to this kid because it's his star player on the basketball team? He's good. He wants him to right. go. To, he wants him to go to college. That's it. And he says, says as much. He's like, I just want the kid to go to college. Mm -hmm. I, we got close to him because I developed him as a player. Right. Which, if he was a straight character, nobody would think anything about. That's the coach. Uh, that's the coach's uh, exactly. Player. Yeah, that's he's doing his job. And and guess what? When that kid gets in trouble, who does he call? He calls his coach. Who's there for him? Even in the wake of his own tragedy, he's still there for this mm. kid. He wants to exonerate him of the murder. And he, when all shit goes haywire with his aunt, who's there? Cut to, okay, we're going to figure out what to do here. You're going to be okay. I'm going to take care of you. Mm. I thought, and you know, again, in 1981, in a low-budget slasher movie, this thing is progressive off the fucking charts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't think Hollywood would depict a story like this. No. Then you put the camp. Do you think you put the camp of Susan Terrell on top of it? <laughs> this is this weird. Wow. I mean, she's giving a uh, like a drag performance. Oh, yeah. And the inspiration for this movie, the initial. Yeah. The initial inspiration for this movie was um, whatever happened to baby Jane, which I mean, is incredible. They wanted to modernize that character and put her in this sort of slasher genre. And that's what she's going for. That was the spark for this movie and 
So, okay, I've praised it. Megan has given it some praise for its uh, representation. Did you like it, Megan? Well, I, I couldn't tell. That's tell what was, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I, was, I realized I didn't, I didn't share if I liked it. Yeah, so speaking about uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane, that makes so much sense. Uh, I mean, Susan Terrell is giving a great performance. It's wildly unhinged and very much camping it up. I mean, (laughs) I have to say, though, she's no Betty Davis and she's no Joan Crawford, though. I mean, you know, they're the the masters of acting and she is not on that level. But she is giving a really captivating, fascinating performance. Um, Yeah. And I really love everything you said, Jason, about the coach. And it's really nice that the coach very much provides a father figure for Billy that he doesn't have. And it's also really great to see that the father figure is a gay character. And again, it is very progressive and very much, you know, ahead of the time. And a masculine, a masculine gay character. Right. Right. I'm Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it kind of, he's not, he's not uh, feminized. No, he's uh, he's a basketball coach. He's just a man. I mean, this is a a traditional heteros, you know? Right. I mean, this isn't the first time that certainly that there's been a masculine gay character. I mean, there's also uh, the boys in the band, which is a seminal gay play that was televised um, in the seventies, I believe. And with very masculine gay characters, but it, you don't see it so often at this time in mainstream films, and you don't see it so often in horror films. So to see that is really, really great. Um, nice. I did like yep. this. I think, I mean, the, the incestuous part is a little hard to <laughs> just because it's so heavy handed. It's so just repetitive and in your face. But I think her performance is great. I think Billy is a really interesting character. I think the coach is a really fascinating character and it's great to see um see him. I think we haven't talked about Julia Duffy as the as the girlfriend and you know she's not an actor I usually like, yep. but I think she's actually quite good here and I like that when the um, the detective is being so gross and he's like, well, have you guys had sex? Have you made it? And she's like, I'm not telling you that. And like, I love that. I love, and again, stand your ground. And I love mm-hmm. that she does it's like that. None of your business. Exactly. Yeah. So yep. yeah, I, so there's a lot of things here that I think are really interesting. And I did like this. The one thing I will say is that, and I wonder if Paul, this is, and I can't wait to hear what you have to say, because I'm curious if this is your uh, take on the film, but there's not a lot of kills and it's not really a traditional slasher film until the very end. So it is kind of interesting that way that we don't get a lot of kills until, you know, she goes full on kill yep. city, but thank you. Yeah. But other than that, I did, I did like this. Megan, that when she does kill, it almost goes into John <laughs> Waters territory. And obviously yeah. Susan Terrell is famous for being in Crybaby. I think Crybaby, Yeah. Um, but yeah, when she's like, oh, I have another round steak in the refrigerator. Can you get it for me? You're so cute. And then just like clobbers the back of the head. It was like cereal mom. Yeah. It was, it was, it was like uh, Civil Shepherd and cereal. Civil Shepherd? No. Uh, no Kathleen. Uh, 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 no, it's Kathleen, Kathleen Turner. Turner. Yeah. Kathleen Turner. And yeah, cereal mom. Yeah, there's, de- this is a campy it movie. And it's much. not intending to be. I do feel like Susan Terrell knows she's being <laughs> yes. campy, but I don't feel anybody else does. <laughs> she knows. Yeah. The rest of it's super straight. And I could maybe make the argument. I think Bo Svensson knows he's, he's, he's really playing it up. Um, and that's, he's a famous B movie character actor. So I think he knows what he's doing. I think they're the only two people <laughs> like that who know what they're doing. Like I'm the crazy fucking bigot. 
you want to see me die. And I'm the crazy incestuous <laughs> ant mom. You know. Ant mom. <laughs> if, only, if only I hadn't drank that milk. But you did, Billy. You did. You did, you did drink the milk. <laughs> All right, Paul. We're waiting with bated breath. What would you think about uh, the funniest, scariest incest movie ever made? <laughs> Um, flowers in the attic hold Jason's oh, beer look, <laughs> <laughs> no look I, as I watched this film I had no idea what I was in for and I was really uncomfortable watching the, the first half of this film not because of the incestuous stuff but because I'm like this is the most homophobic character I've ever seen in a film do they know what he they're is. doing here yes. and I didn't I didn't until the end of the film when finally he gets his cup up. And maybe even the last 20, 30 minutes, he realized they're going for this so hard. This is now not just a side thing. This is not just a character trait. They're making a point here. So I gradually yeah. came back around to it. But for a long time there, I was really like, oh, my God, what are we watching? How? No wonder no one's seen this film. No wonder this hasn't gotten out anywhere. But by the end, I realized, okay, this is a very deliberate thing. Do I think the two sides mash together well? Not at all. Do I think this is a good slasher film? No, it's not. This is a terrible slasher film. It's got a lot of things to say, and it does some of those things very well by the end. But as a slasher movie, <laughs> except for two things. One, the opening where the car crash happens Incredible. might be the most over-the-top, extreme example of showing two innocent people plummeting to their deaths. After One of them, after it gets the Final Destination 2 logged through the head, I the, might add. Yeah. Yeah, that's Final Destination. Definitely borrowed took it from, from this, this movie. from yes, this for hundred percent for sure. Yeah. And then it doesn't. Then the car she's out. Like, the poor mom's trying to control the car while her husband, her life partner, has probably it's lost goo. his head. And there's a, a <laughs> goo right next to her, and she's steering the car all over the place, and she's dodging things left, right, and center. And then it goes over the edge and into this lake. And I'm like, oh, wow, what a terrible way to die. Beat explosion. <laughs> then the car like, Holy <laughs> shit. That's how you know what you're in for. It's just like, oh, it's like picture as wow. crazy Aunt Cheryl's like, oh, it's yep. going to be okay, Billy. Have a good trip. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, then it goes crazy sort of death face. Yeah. 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 Zoom crazy shit. face. Decapitation. Explosion, and you're like, okay, yep. this is a this is a campy, crazy movie. Yes. Yeah, it was. And she just was gets probably crazier and crazier. <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah. And, she and what carries a, what a decision it. to she make. She carries it. Yeah, yeah. Look, she's good. She yes. is good in the film. She's certainly memorable in the film, as opposed yeah. to Billy and and the girlfriend and the like, and, and the poor understated coach. And then, yeah, both Vincent just paying the big one of the biggest pieces of shit I've ever seen. <laughs> and that just overrode everything for me, even yeah, Susan Tyrell's performance. And I was just found that really difficult to kind of reconcile but now understanding it's deliberate and now seeing yep. how this is being read i think in the the i think the way that was ultimately intended though i'm fascinated in the writing process where they decided <laughs> to, to really hammer this this homophobic cop like okay Look, and then the thing that two other things one bill paxton is the the jock yes. asshole uh, yes. on the team so you know whatever i thought he was going to meet his end at some point, but didn't, which really no. surprised me. Uh, and then at the very end, we get after Billy kills the piece of shit right, um, homophobic cop. Where the jury unanimously acqu acquitted him <laughs> due to temporary insanity. How about due to justifiable homicide? This man oh, yeah. was going to murder right? someone else. It wasn't insanity. Jesus. Anyway. <laughs> but he's in college in Denver. With he's doing fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's we fine. We got a TV he's movie. He's not. He's not traumatized no, he's anymore. Okay. He's all right. We get a TV movie ending, which is tacked on at the end, which is really funny. Um, 
this movie is camp. And because of that, I enjoy it. And this is a revisit for me as well. A rewatch. I watched it for the first time just uh, last year. And, um, yeah, I, I didn't know what to make of it either. The first time I watched it, I really didn't like it the first time this time, knowing what I was getting, what clicked for me more than ever before is like, it's very clear who the killer is. And it's very clear. It's not Billy. And this cop cannot see the forest from trees because he's a bigot. Mm -hmm. Because he's like, well, it has to be some sort of three-way gay (laughs) love affair gone wrong. And his own partner is like, what the hell are you talking (laughs) about? It's the old lady. lady." And he's like, shut up. Go on vacation. He's like, yeah. And he's like, hey, you're I blind. All this he's information. Like, look, the, yeah. the, the kid's parents were killed in this yeah. thing. You're like, oh, what? You're barking the up the wrong told you to yeah. drop it. Yeah, the brakes were cut. Not only that, like her high school boyfriend went missing and like no one's ever found the body. Like this lady is clearly crazy and he will not get off of it because no. of his homophobia. And I think that's the movie's yes. point is that's what yeah. prejudice does. It blinds you against all reason and you don't even see what's right in front of your fucking face. That this is just a straight kid who's a victim. He's being drugged and abused yes. by this woman. And he's just like, because he thinks he's gay, he's, he's less than human. And it took me the exactly. second time to be like, oh, this movie's way more in control of what it's doing narratively, at least on that side of the equation, than the first time. The first time, all I was hearing was the F slur. I was and mm-hmm. and I'm like, yeah, oh, 1981, low budget. I'm like, this is making me uncomfortable. And this time, I'm like, oh no, you know what you're doing. You yeah. are pushing it into our face and being like, look how blind and stupid and ignorant and monstrous this viewpoint is exactly and and he's gonna get the worst fucking death (laughs) (laughs) the movie ends with his absolute brutal murder and killed too quickly he should have suffered a lot longer than that but anyway (laughs) yeah that's true um okay is it awards time megan did you you, can we do awards let's do awards all right let's start with uh, uh let's start with our best final girl megan we say final girl girls in quotation marks because it's not always that's female true. uh that's just the popularized term so who is uh your best final girl? well my best final girl is a girl it's pam in the prowler yep i don't disagree i'm 100 right there with you Woo-hoo! pam is the one who stands up and blows the head off the killer in the prowler she is tough as nails there's a moment in the prowler where She's going to be dumped by the boyfriend while he's going to go and save the day and find out who this is. And they have this uncomfortable fight and she just sort of stands there like, oh, no, I'm... And then he... She doesn't walk away. She doesn't go back yep. into the party. She forces her way back into proceedings. And if she hadn't done that, he might well be dead and a lot more people might have been dead. She is as tough as nails as they come and she is the worthy winner of the Blood Pools final girl this I week. agree. Well said. Pam is incredible, but Pam didn't have to fight off her own incestuous father who was strangling her with a phone cord. (laughs) The best final girl of the week is Billy from Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker. Stabs his own mother. He's like, I killed my mother, my mother, my my aunt, my mother, my mother, my aunt. (laughs) (laughs) My aunt mom. You know, I... Um, So it's Billy for me. Pam was up there, but I felt like you guys were going to select. So I had Billy as my final girl, quote unquote, until I saw the Prowler. So, yeah. So I agree with you. Billy's a good Uh, one, too. But nope, sorry. Pam wins. But yeah, I had Pam. (laughs) 
Yeah, I had Pam and I was like, ah, I think Megan and Paul will pick her. I got to give Billy a shout out. So nice. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's very interesting Fair. what they do with this character. Okay, uh, let's go. Let's just slightly out of order. Let's do the best poster slash box art, old VHS cover. What do you think is the best of these films from our blood pool? Uh, Paul, let's start with uh, you. Yeah, I think the we talked about it as being too much of a spoiler and it ruining the scene in the film, but I think that iconic image of the kebab going towards not Matt Frewer's face, that in itself is a bit of a fake out, is uh, is pretty iconic and certainly sticks in my memory. So happy birthday to me is my choice. Megan? That is a great choice, and I, I do think it's the most striking of the posters, but my pick is, again, the Prowler. I love that black and white gothic look of kind of the haunted house vibe so yeah i really like that poster okay i'm picking busher baker oh nightmare my god <laughs> <laughs> what not night warnings not uh, night warnings it is a nude billy with like a knife coming mm-hmm. up almost looks like a triangle it's right under his throat yeah I'm looking at it. Yep. crazy eye of his aunt mother and then behind him is julia duffy but if you really look at the face, the face is also menacing, and there's details of Susan Terrell's face and his girlfriend behind him. It's sexual, it's weird, it's psychological, it's provocative, it has a knife and a reflection. It's classic slasher stuff. I love it. The Night Warnings poster sucks. Uh, is that the first time we haven't agreed? We've got a completely different answer for the first time so far, I think, in slasher podcast history. Well, there you are. Okay, let's go cult classic. What's the movie that you think is desperately underseen, but you really enjoyed or however the fuck you want to define it? <laughs> so I had such a hard time. I literally was going back and forth up until like three minutes ago because I have two. And I think it's got to come down to not only what I enjoyed, but what I think is culturally important and that's going to be Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker <laughs> I yeah. can tell what Jason's choice is going to be no but I, I won't reveal mine yet but I'm right there with you it, it honestly could be any, just about any of these except for maybe one I was just sort of like ah, yeah. I can make a case for any of them so yes. this, this was tough Paul look again I've really struggled with this one I'm probably going to go with the fact that it's so underseen and so few people talk about it. I'm going to go with the Prowler. Yes. Because I, nice. I wish I wish more people would have seen this film and I wish I had been educated before this point in my life. So if you are listening to this and have, we have completely spoiled the film, but if you're interested at all, absolutely check out the spoiler. It is worthy of your time. Yep. Spoiler? The Prowler. <laughs> the Prowler. Megan, if you were here, I'd give you a consensual hug if you were consenting. I'm consent. Because I'm also going with Butcher Baker Yay! Nightmare Maker. <laughs> it's oh, so weird. <laughs> it's so weird. It's so camp. It's drag. It's 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 oh my goodness. It it is it is if it's bad David Lynch meets <laughs> John Waters meets a slasher movie, it is so weird. When she's got him all doped up in the bed oh and she's God. got the milk, she's like, drink it, drink it. <laughs> it's fucking creepy and funny. And when the lady's like, it's raining. Can I call my husband? She's like, there's an umbrella in the closet. I yeah. suggest you use it and leave. And then she's like, really? <laughs> the way she just 
vacillates between uh, talking like this, <laughs> I'm gonna kill you, Billy. I'm gonna kill you, you little bastard. Then to being like, you're my, oh, I love you, Billy. I'm your mommy. We're gonna be together forever. Like, it's so fucking strange. And she's giving it, she is. She's giving it her all. Not so. holding back. She's not holding back. And I love her for not that. To- I, I hear what you go. I knew that was your choice, Jason. Because <laughs> I'm glad, Megan, that you and Jason have aligned finally, finally. and it's starting to fall into place. But one other thing about the, which did annoy me again when we're talking about this on a slasher podcast is how many times does she fake want to kill Julia in that film? That got really started that's, to annoy that's me. Fair. Yeah. It's like, she, come on, you killed everyone else straight away. This this. Little no, she beats her in the head girl. about four yeah, different her in the head. times. <laughs> yeah, and then with a rock at some point. I'm like, okay, yeah. now she's de- definitely dead. Nope. This film is a downer ending. Nope, no, she's alive. And they went off to college. That Julia just, Duffy's okay. just one tough apparently. cookie. That's all we can say. <laughs> apparently, apparently. I mean, in in fairness, Aunt Cheryl is she's an older lady. <laughs> she's frail. She killed everyone else pretty good. That's true. That's true. Okay. Mm, Paul, you're chomping at the bit. Best kill. Yeah, look, this one's pretty tough because I went back and forth between two films and dear God, Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker better not be your choice in this one, Jason. <laughs> Given some of the other, what we've got on offer here from uh, some, some pretty impressive uh, practical kills. I'm going to go with the one we've talked about a lot today although if we were talking about a moment or a scene in a film it would have to be the burning and killing six kids in like 30 yes. seconds of screen time yes. if, we're talking, if we're talking about a kill though i'm going with the shower scene in the prowler with the pitchfork into the stomach lifting her off yes. the ground and it's completely exposed that it's so i mean mate you can't see that obviously listener at home but megan just squirmed <laughs> me even describing it so that's how effective it is. That is a good one. All right, Megan. Well, I did pick the rap scene in the burning. Fair but, enough. but if Fair I have enough. to pick it, if I have to narrow it down to one, I mean, it's not. See, because I was going to say this isn't technically a kill, but when he chops Fisher Stevens's fingers off, like, oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I think the uh, here's the thing. I think the raft scene is fair because they all die. Okay, good. Okay, because yeah, for me it's okay. It's a mass for me killing. it's the raft scene that is fair so enough. visceral and so intense and yep. just rapid. Well, it's hard to go past yeah. that then because you're sick for the price of one. <laughs> yeah, no, but the shower. <laughs> this isn't quantity, know, right? but the shower prowler one is a great kill. It really is. It's a good choice. Thing. Yeah, it's I very agree. disturbing. Yes. Oh no! Yeah, yeah I yes. was like, I was thinking the other shower, but yeah, no, that shower. Yes, that one. Oh, terrible. We're splitting again because I am going to choose not Butcher Baker. Oh, Nightmare. <laughs> I'm going to choose the Prowler. Nice, but it is the death of the Prowler himself. It's when she gets the shotgun, Pam. Pam, oh, right? Mm-hmm. Pam gets yep, the Pam. shotgun and blows his head off. Uh, I think that again, just an incredible headshot. I gave it to the maniac for that same yeah. maniac. Yep. It's even better here. Uh, dog food and all. It is one of the great headshots. This is one of the great head explosions in film history and an underrated one because there was like, well, scanners. This looks yes. just as good, if not better than scanners, in my opinion. Yep, I agree. Uh, it, and it, it kind of like we, we have the tension with them jockeying for the gun, but you're every time, 
I always forget the exact moment it's going to go off, and it catches me by surprise every time. I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's coming, and it's the first time I didn't know his head was going to get blown off. Because here's the thing. Slasher killers very rarely definitively die. Die. That's true. That fucker is dead. <laughs> he is <laughs> dead and cannot come no back. No sequels. Marvelous it, box office. There's a reason why there's never been the Prowler 2. <laughs> <laughs> So I got to give it up to Tom Savini yes. again with another head explosion. Good choice. Okay. This leaves us with our best flick of the week. We're going to grade it uh, out of five potential sharp objects. Megan, what's the best of the second part of 1981? For me, the best is the burning, which I will give 3.5 sharp objects. Look, I think today's discussion, I've upped a whole bunch of my grades what Ooh. I initially scored them as, so I'm going to have to retrospectively go back and and make sure that I've accurately quantified these things on Letterboxd, but I'm going to go by the edge of a bayonet. I'm going to give it to the Prowler over the burning, and I'm going to give it four sharp objects out of five. With four out of five sharp objects, I am in agreement with Paul. The hey. best movie this week <laughs> is The Prowler. It was a toss-up between the Prowler and the Burning, though. Yep. Tough choice. Okay, Megan, what? where can the fine folks at home find us if this is their first time listening to The Slashers? You can find us on Letterboxd or The Slashers, and you can follow us on Instagram, The Slashers Podcast. We are going to go off into 1982. It's going to be another two-parter here, folks. It is. Tentatively, if we can find all of these, because we're going into some deep-cut territory. Our preferred blood pool will be January's Island of Blood, March's The New York Ripper, April's <laughs> this one, uh, Silent Rage, May's what? Death Scream, Chuck Norris movie, <laughs> May's Visiting Hours, and May's Midnight. How many of these things came out just in May alone? Now we're in the thick of it. Now the studios are getting involved. It's, it's mm-hmm. shenanigans. Uh, so that's what's next in our blood pool in 1982 part one. Uh, so that that's going to be interesting to see. I don't know, if, Megan, have you ever seen a Chuck Norris movie? I have not. It is a Chuck I Norris movie. I have not. Okay, I thought I was joking. But okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess there's only one thing left to say. We'll catch you later. <laughs>